It's great to be with you again, Jonathan. Great to see you, Seth. How's it going? How's your eye? Honestly, I think it's pretty much the same from the last episode. But okay. that's okay. I got frustrated because I like want immediate results. And mm. Patty has to keep reminding me, like, it's going to take two months for the bubble to dissipate. And I'm like, yeah, but it's been like four days, so shouldn't the bubble be smaller? <laughs> She's like, maybe a little bit. And I'm like, oh, okay. She has to like, keep reminding me that I, feel like we I have to end, wait. I feel like we could end this episode right there, just with that point. Patty's wisdom <laughs> about good things taking time. <laughs> yeah, we could. We could all pretty much always end on Patty giving me snippets of wisdom. <laughs> That's true. Follow-up question. Were you bitten by any radioactive insects while you were undergoing your eye procedure so that when your eye bubble heals, you'll have some sort of superpower related to your sight? I don't think so, unfortunately. I was just laying face down for five days. I don't think there was t- there was a time for a radioactive bug to bite me. There wasn't time. There was five well, like, days. It- it was gonna. Uh, it would have to get into my house, make it up to like I laid mostly in the bed. Make it up to my bedroom, bite there's, me. There's nothing about this that says, "Oh, a radioactive insect couldn't bite me." You're just talking about how you're lying around, not moving. That seems like yeah, it's but, pretty likely. <laughs> it's gotta get in my house and then go upstairs. That seems like not that likely. Do you know how bugs work? <laughs> Yeah. How how often do you find a bug like in your attic? Whatever. If you had an attic. On. <laughs> I gotta save this with what would you do in this particular situation? Would you want one of your no experts allowed t shirts to be bleached white in the wash or have color from another t shirt bleed into it during the wash cycle? Hmm. I think I would go with the bled in color into a shirt, presumably, that I already have. And if our listeners want to enjoy some of their own No Experts Allowed merch, they can, right? They can, yeah. That was a a shameless plug. Nice. www.noexpertsallowed.com I just think we have, uh, I, I think we could have some good looks coming from some interesting color matches. But I don't think the bleach necessarily has the same effect, you know? Yeah, one's tie-dye, and the other's just ruined. What about you? How are you ruining your merch? (laughs) (sighs) Yeah, I think I'm with you. I'd rather have it like a a tie-dye mixed bag of colors than just like like bleaching random stuff white, like random parts of it. And because if it got the logo, then nobody would even know like what you were wearing. If you bleach the whole shirt that's white, true. then you just have like a pure white t-shirt. Yeah, that's too much pressure. I'd spill too much on it. Oh yeah, same. <laughs> I got pasta sauce on one of my no experts on t-shirts, but it came out. That's good. That, that is good. Not bad. Yeah, I'm, it I'm was. Glad you, I, I think you only would have told me that if you had gotten it out and you'd ruined a shirt. <laughs> I think totally I true. <laughs> That's absolutely true. And I, I watched it once and the stain was lighter but still there. And I was like, crap. 
Like, it, like once you watch it once, you don't have any hope. But I watched it. I put more stain remover on it and watched it again. And it came out like magic. Nice. I mean, it's not magic. It's science, but... It's <laughs> Whatever. Man, we are a train wreck for this episode start. We're all over the place. Should I try to center us back by reading our scripture passage? I would appreciate that. Okay, I'll try my best. This is Luke chapter 9, verses 28 to 36 from the NIV. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor and were talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, he didn't know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud, saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. Thanks for reading that for us. This is both, I think, a well known passage but it's also always a strange one so is is there anything that jumps out at you while you're reading that well first off i would agree with that characterization that this i would say is a familiar but misunderstood or ununderstood passage (laughs) i loved the parenthetical and i hope my reading did it justice of after peter's uh Peter's expression of all the things that they should do there. There's just this parenthetical in verse 33 that just says he did not know what he was saying. <laughs> but there were a lot of things that came to mind for me. I think, you know, what's the significance of Moses and Elijah? What were they what were they actually talking to Jesus about? What was significant about that? I also think it's interesting you know, in the end of this passage, I think we've talked about this on the podcast before, but maybe I'm conflating that memory with something else. But I'm thinking about when Jesus was baptized and comparing that experience where you hear a voice from the heavens talk about, presumably, God talking about God's child uh, and the things that that voice says in those two scenes, I think, are very interesting. I don't know. This is this is a really fascinating passage. And at its core, it's just wild. And I think after this little exploration, you could put a parenthetical that said, Jonathan did not know what he was saying. (laughs) Well, I'll add my name to that too. But let's start at least trying to get at some of your questions. See if we can make some sense, even if we don't know completely what we're saying. At least maybe we we can have a better idea. 
Most commentators think that Moses and Elijah appear as kind of like figures for the law and the prophets. But others have have suggested, or, or maybe I should say have added, the fact that both of them kind of have mysterious ends. Elijah just, he just like rises in like what's like an ascension. And then Moses dies and he's buried, but nobody knows where. Even in the Torah, like the location of his tomb is unknown. So both of them kind of have have these ends to their stories that make it possible for them to kind of come back, if I can say it that way. Okay. <laughs> no, that's that's helpful. Because it's like, I mean, you clearly Moses and Elijah strike me as significant people. But for the gospel author composing this, either due to documentation of what actually happened or for constructing this experience to tell a story about Jesus, clearly the inclusion of those two individuals has significant meaning other than just like, oh, these these guys were a big deal. Like, it's not like at the NBA All-Star Game this past weekend, they had, for the 75th anniversary of the NBA, they gathered the 75 greatest players, and they were all, all the living ones at least. Uh, I think with the exception of Larry Bird, who I saw in a joke on Twitter, was the designated survivor <laughs> of, the, oh of the group. <laughs> uh, but they were all gathered on, on the stage, and it's like, it's it feels like that kind of moment, right? Like, there's this sense of the significant the significance of the history being significant for the present moment too. And I think you shed a little light on how that takes shape. Yeah, I like your analogy of the All Star game. Is that what it's called? You I know yes. nothing about yeah. basketball. Sports. Like I enjoy watching basketball. But I don't understand all the periphery things about basketball. Like, I don't understand how, like, the trade windows work and stuff. Or how, like, you manage basketball teams. Do you want to be okay. a GM someday? No. Well, that's probably good then. <laughs> <laughs> and the other point that I want to touch on is this this voice that comes from a cloud. And just like you noted, it's, like it, it's reminiscent of Jesus' baptism. I think that's actually a telling connection. Because at Jesus' baptism, we can kind of think of that as the beginning of his ministry. And what we don't have at the end of his ministry here, like, we're pointing in that direction. When Moses and Elijah are there, they're speaking to Jesus about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. So kind of the way that I'm thinking of it is like here at the Transfiguration, we're already kind of looking forward. We're, we're looking at the end. We're looking at his crucifixion, his resurrection. And we're getting like a, a, a little glimpse of that glory that is coming. Just like at Jesus' baptism, we get a little glimpse of who he is and the glory of his ministry. Yeah, the moment I remember from this conversation from before, with you or not, I cannot remember. (laughs) But I think it was you that made the point that the distinction between the words of the voice 
was initially this statement of Jesus's identity. This is my son whom I love in him. I am well pleased. And now at this moment, the moment of transfiguration, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. And it seems to be more about mission and purpose and work and labor too than that initial moment at baptism. Also, there's part of me that's pre- that's skeptical that this was anything other than like a fever dream for the disciples. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like whenever some wild stuff goes on, the disciples are like half asleep. And yeah, so, they are. <laughs> you know what kind of nonsense goes on in your brain when you're half asleep? Who knows? Yeah, they're they're asleep at the most inopportune times. Like right. he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, they're asleep. Like, he's about to be transfigured. They're asleep. It's like, these guys sleep a lot. The only thing I was thinking, this is backtracking just a little bit, about your comment about these voices that come from the heavens. They just strike me as, like, the way that we classically think about Christology. It's like, we usually talk about Christology as what's Jesus' nature and what's Jesus' work. Those are like the two kind of fundamental branches. And while they're certainly connected, I think that this is my son, the beloved, might tell us something about Jesus' nature. This is my son whom I've chosen, might tell us something about Jesus' work. It's interesting that we have these two theological questions that we're asking and the ways that Maybe these texts help inform those questions. The only other aspect of this text that I want to bring to our attention is how communal it is. That there's Peter, James, and John. There's, of course, Jesus. But there's also Moses and Elijah. It's like a, it's like its own little community up here on this mountain. I don't know. I've been thinking about that this community and mountaintop experiences and the way that when jesus is transfigured like other people have to be there to see it and experience it i just wonder i guess if jesus could have been transfigured alone i feel like we're getting into what's the point but this text for me at least the way that i'm hearing it today is so much more about community than I've ever heard it before. Mm. That Jesus' glory shines so bright that, that it has to shine onto other people. There have to be other people there to see it and reflect it and experience it. It's like if a tree falls in the forest. <laughs> Just thinking the same thing. <laughs> if a tree falls in the forest and nobody hears it, you know, I guess like we can also kind of ask the question, like if Jesus is transfigured, but nobody's there to see it, did his face shine brightly? Yeah, I, I'm struck, Seth, by your language of mountaintop experiences, because obviously that's, that's what this is, literally. Uh, but we use that language to talk about significant moments, at least I know in my experience, significant moments in our journey of faith 
things where times where things become clear, where commitments become evident. And I don't know if you can think of think of times like these, but I always remembered things like camp and retreats and other experiences that I did either, you know, with my youth group or with group ministry groups in college or other experiences like that that were kind of a little bit removed from the day-to-day and provided a lot of focus on the content at hand, whatever it was at the time. But I'm so I'm so interested because I think oftentimes the way that we claim those mountaintop experiences is in our, in our own stories. Like what I think makes those experiences so formative are the ways that they mm-hmm. bond us together. Oftentimes, like the stereotype is, you know, everyone who goes to camp or goes on a retreat is like, we're going to stay best <laughs> friends after this. We're never going to stop. You know, we're going to have lunch all the time. We're going to whatever it is. And that always, this stuff always fades. There's always the post-retreat or whatever fall off after the inevitable, during the experience. We're not going to let this be like all the other experiences. We're going to stay together this time. But it's like, no matter what, no matter where you go as you descend the mountain, that experience binds you together. And it's, I, and I wonder for the future of the church how significant it is that peter john and james were the three that saw Mm. this experience Mm. you know i don't want to get too deep into that necessarily but i'm like what did this bond mean for them but i really appreciate your emphasis on how mountaintop experiences are not just about what they do for us personally i think peter evidences how fleeting that that connection can be sometimes but as they left the three disciples had this common bond that they apparently felt so strongly affected by that they decided to keep it a secret and not tell anyone about it it surprises me just because exactly what you said that peter james and john are so bonded by this experience that peter isn't like I should build six shelters. Like, it surprises me that he doesn't want to stay there with them. But maybe he knows somehow that, just like we're talking about, like, these mountaintop experiences sort of inevitably fade a little bit. Maybe he knows that too. But it's interesting to me because I think, I know I know exactly what you're talking about. When you're like, oh, we're going to be best friends. And I think that while while your hangout sessions become more infrequent, like you do always share something with those people that you went on your camp trip with. That you went canoeing with on the church retreat. That you worshipped next to. Like, I remember seeing some of those people, like, later, you know, after some time has passed. Mm-hmm. And just somehow knowing that I was connected to them in some way, that we, that we had that experience together. That, that that connection somehow remains even after our enthusiasm 
to hang out with each other diminishes. Yeah, it's it's so striking. You know, Seth, I think sometimes we really fashion time in a linear way, right? We literally have timelines to describe <laughs> series of events over <laughs> over a particular period of time, whatever it may be. Um, and that's kind of how we think, we think so individually with that too. Like for this, you know, at, when I was this age, I did this thing. And while I was, you know, living here, I did these things. There was just like this very linear experience that is so isolated and insular from others. And in reality, it feels like a better representation of time. The closest thing that comes to mind, have you ever seen a map of all the different flight paths that like cross over the United States and the world? Like, just like... From this city to this city and this city to this city yeah. and this city to this city. You know, like all the different, just like overlapping each other. It's like way more complex than a road map. And I think even places like the Air and Space Smithsonian in uh, DC have like live action flight maps that are like time lapses of like, here are all the planes going. That feels like a more accurate representation of, of like kind of a history of our time, right? Is like for these periods of time, there's some level of synchronicity. And then after that, after that moment ends, that mountaintop experience ends, we're going so many different ways. And it's like, and in, in a sense, it's like we never can get back to that space again. But time is also kind of circular in that when we're around those same people, you know, when you and I are are together ourselves or are around other people that we went to college with, there is something about our college selves that is mm -hmm. then manifest yeah. in the present too. And so it's like these community experiences bond us together in these moments in time where our supposedly singular timelines intersect and overlap for a period. And we oftentimes very deeply bonded. And then we go totally separate ways. And going back to those spaces, like there's always a connection point where it feels so similar and yet always feels so different. Because even though you try to recreate it, you just can't. Because you're not the same people as you were at the beginning hmm. of that experience the first time. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of that that dumb meme where the person's like explaining. It's usually some like complicated theory or like conspiracy theory. And, like, he has all these papers on the wall. He's, like, holding the marker. And he's, like, all stressed out. I don't know if you can think, you can picture this. Like that. And it'll say something like, you know, trying to prove there's only one Olsen twin. You know, something like that. Like, it's just... The way that time works is actually just, like you're saying, like, a lot more complicated than, than this linear fashion that we think of it. Like, the way that time works is more like the ways that our, like, our human connections develop and happen throughout our life. Like, we run into each other and we make a connection and there's some time. Like, you see someone again and that, you know, you have a new connection with them. Even if it's just hello. And, like, they're connecting with new people, too. Yeah, there's, there's all these these different points of connection happening all together all the time. Yeah, I just am really valuing Seth. You you emphasizing the communal aspect of this experience and thinking about 
mountaintop experiences in general. Yeah, it reminds me, I guess, that communities and our connections with people are equally, if not even more complex than the story of the Transfiguration. Mm. That feels like a good one to ponder as we wrap up our episode. Yeah, let's leave it there. And can I pray for us? Yeah, that'd be great. Triune God, you exist as three in one and one in three. And you share with your disciples your glorification because no one can shine alone. Help us to see our place in the community of saints around us, before us, and coming after us. We pray this through the one who first called the beloved community, beloved, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. We're so glad you're part of this community, too. Next week, we're going to take a look at Romans chapter 10, verses 8 through 13, to start off the season of Lent. Until then, thanks for walking us through that story, Seth. Thanks for helping me tell it. Nice. www.noexpertsallowed.com Click on merch. Get merch. <laughs> Click on but merch. I... Get merch. Should we make denim jackets for merch? With like a bedazzled where's logo it gonna... on the chest? I was going to say, where's our logo going to be? Oh, it's going to be bedazzled. We're going to have Rhinestones. to make stones. We're going to have to make these because I feel like you can't buy these online. We're going to have to get together and start bedazzling. That'd be worth it. In like, in like a sweatshop. Okay. <laughs>